The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Our guest today is Dr. Colin M. Barn, who is the author of Travels in Time, the Story of Time Travel Cinema, a new look at the history of the time travel film genre from its earliest beginnings all the way through to the present day. So Colin, it's been almost a hundred years since the very first time travel film was made. Why is it that you feel that this genre has had such enduring appeal? Thank you, Tom. Time travel movies have a universal appeal, and I think this is because we can all identify with one of the common plots. Going back to the past to change things in order to alter the present and future. As we go through life, we all have a tendency to make mistakes, sometimes very serious ones, sometimes every day. And we've all said to ourselves at some point, Oh, I wish I could go back in a time machine and do this differently or do that differently. React differently to an event. Say different things. Make different decisions and so on. For example, between 1999 and 2001, I made what I now realise were very serious errors concerning money and property. One of these mistakes occurred in 2001 when I sold my bungalow in Dune and moved to Dunblane. I now realise that if I had bought a house in Glasgow with my wife, then my hypnotherapy business would probably have survived and my wife's heart tumour, which later caused her severe stroke, would probably have been picked up sooner and her stroke prevented. An article in the newspapers recently said that the average person makes four major mistakes in their life. I made up a list in my computer recently and I found that I've made 24 serious errors in my life to date. And I think this is typical. Throughout our lives, we all tend to make errors concerning money and investments, the property we live in, where we live, the courses we do, the jobs we work at, the people we date, and who we marry. All these decisions can have life-changing consequences. So a film in which the hero goes back in time to change things, which is a very common trope in such movies, has universal appeal. So what can you tell us about the first time travel film, and what kind of influence has that had on subsequent productions over the years? The first time travel film was the silent 1921 version of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which was directed by Emmett J. Flynn. This film was based on Mark Twain's novel, 
and was about an American man who travels back to the Middle Ages where he has a series of adventures. He falls in love with a woman and then returns to the present where he meets another woman who looks just like her and they become an item. The film was highly influential and was remade in 1931 and again in 1949. That second remake starred Bing Crosby and was in colour. As Bing was a well-known singer, that version featured several musical numbers. But the core idea of a person travelling back to medieval times has been copied in many other films. Sometimes it happens the other way around with people travelling from the Middle Ages to our time and having to cope with modern society. And the idea of the hero meeting their perfect love in the past and having to leave them has been used many times. The 1960 film The Time Machine, which starred Rod Taylor, is rightly regarded as one of the greatest time travel movies ever made, and certainly it's a work of seminal science fiction. Can you tell me a bit more about how you've approached that film? H.G. Wells' 1895 book The Time Machine was a groundbreaking novella. It was the first fictional work which suggested that journeys in time might be achieved using some kind of machine or apparatus. This was a revolutionary idea which has influenced many films and TV series. Bearing in mind the unique concepts in the book, it is surprising that it took Hollywood so long to make a film about it but one was made in 1959 and released in 1960. The director was George Pal, who'd previously been involved with a number of classic science fiction films, notably Destination Moon in 1950 and also the 1953 version of War of the Worlds. Pal's specialty was stop frame animation in which small flexible puppets were moved slightly between each frame and he made a series of short films featuring these creations which he called puppetoons. Stop frame animation played a key part in the special effects in the 1960 movie, particularly in the scenes which depicted the time traveller's journey through time. The shots of fruit growing and ripening at a rapid rate were actually achieved using a large, highly realistic painting, which was altered by the artist very slightly between each frame. Originally, George Pal intended to cast a well-known middle-aged actor such as James Mason or David Niven as the time traveller, but in the end he used the 29-year-old Australian actor Rod Taylor, who'd previously appeared in a 1956 film called World Without End, about astronauts caught in a time warp. Taylor excelled in the fight scenes in the time machine, and with his square-jawed looks and muscular physique, he came to the attention of Bond producers Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, who offered him the role of James Bond in Doctor No. Taylor turned down the offer, considering the role of Bond to be beneath him. But in later years, he considered this to be the greatest mistake of his professional career. 
A remake of The Time Machine directed by Simon Wells and using special effects largely created by CGI was released in 2002, but with a critical and commercial failure. However, a second remake of the classic story was announced recently. And the striking Time Machine prop itself, which was created for the 1960 film and was remarkably detailed, has an interesting history of its own. H.G. Wells didn't give a detailed description of the machine in his original book, so George Pal came up with an idea which was then interpreted by his art director, Bill Ferrari. Pal had always enjoyed sledging as a child, so his design looked like an old-fashioned wooden sledge with a thickly upholstered Victorian barber's chair mounted on top. There was a cylindrical control panel with three large coloured flashing lights on top and behind the chair was a large rotating disc covered with hieroglyphics which was actually powered by a barbecue spit motor. It was a design classic. A brass plate on the movie prop stated that it had been built by H. George Wells. As the time traveller was called George in the movie. Does this mean that he was actually H.G. Wells himself? Or is George a reference to George Powell? It's a question which has never fully been answered. The time machine prop survived the filming but in 1972 it was sold off at an auction of MGM movie props. By 1976 it was in a dilapidated condition in a thrift shop in California, where it was spotted and purchased by movie collector Bob Burns. Burns commissioned its restoration to original condition, and this was completed by the end of October 1976. To discourage people from sitting in the barber's chair and wearing it out, Burns placed a mannequin of Rod Taylor's character in costume in the chair, the prop has since been used in a number of films, TV series and commercials, including promotional films for the Back to the Future movies. In 1993, it was used in the 48-minute documentary The Time Machine, The Way Back, which was partly a short sequel to the original film. As Bob Burns was reluctant to allow the prop to be moved to a sound stage in case of damage, a huge colour photo of the time machine was pasted to a large sheet of foam board, which was then cut out. This created a large two-dimensional replica of the time machine, which could only be filmed from one angle. Another film of the period that had great influence was a lesser-known 1964 film, The Time Travellers. Can you say a bit more about that? The Time Travellers is a film that most people have never seen or even heard of, yet it contains a lot of brilliant ideas which have been used in subsequent films and TV productions. For example, the Irwin Allen TV series The Time Tunnel was inspired by this film. The plot of The Time Travellers concerns a group of scientists who invent a viewing device, a time television if you like, which enables them to see into the future. 
but they soon discover that they have created an actual portal into the future. One of their number steps through the portal and ends up in a desert wasteland in the far future, which is overrun with hostile post-apocalyptic mutants and friendly androids. The rest of the scientific team go through the portal to retrieve their colleague and they are stranded in the future. They discover that the remnants of humanity are surviving in an underground city and plan to escape to another world in a rocket. But the mutants break into the city at the last moment and destroy the spacecraft as it is lifting off. The only solution now is to repair the time portal and escape to the past. The 20th century scientists eventually do this, but when they return to the present day, they see their earlier cells in their laboratory, apparently frozen in time. It appears that they themselves are moving so fast in time that their earlier cells are stationary. The film ends with a sequence in which the events of the entire movie repeat themselves as a series of clips which gets faster and shorter with each cycle, implying that the scientists are trapped in a time loop. The film was highly influential, as well as leading to the Time Tunnel TV series. As mentioned earlier, it was one of the first films to feature a time loop, an idea that has been used many times since. Also, the notion that the travellers are moving so fast in time other people appear frozen was used in the 2002 film Clockstoppers as well as Time Lash, a 1970 episode of the TV series UFO, and Wink of an Eye, an episode of the original Star Trek TV series. Your book concerns cinema rather than television, so there's no mention of Doctor Who, a TV series which really is synonymous with time travel. However, you have talked about the two Dalek films which starred Peter Cushing and which were produced in the mid-1960s. How did those films come about? The first Dalek story caused a sensation when it was first broadcast at the end of 1963. So much so that the BBC were forced to bring back the creatures in a serial about the Dalek invasion of Earth a year later. In addition, film producer Milton Sabotsky negotiated a deal to remake the first two Dalek stories in colour for the big screen. In these days, Doctor Who was recorded and broadcast almost every week of the year, rather like current soaps like EastEnders and Coronation Street, so there was no possibility of any of the original cast such as William Hartnell, being involved. The parts were therefore recast, with Peter Cushing playing the Doctor, who is now called Doctor Who rather than just the Doctor. It was also implied that he was an eccentric British inventor rather than an alien, and there were other script changes to make the story comprehensible to people who had never seen the TV series. New Daleks were manufactured for the two films by Shawcraft Models of Uxbridge, 
who'd built the four original BBC Daleks in 1963. There were a number of differences though. The fenders were noticeably bigger, making the Daleks taller, and the exterminator guns now fired a jet of carbon dioxide from an inbuilt fire extinguisher. Three of these film Daleks were subsequently borrowed by the BBC for use as static props in the 1965 serial The Chase, in which they had their fenders removed to reduce their height. Unfortunately, the films fared badly at the all-important US box office, largely because no one in America had ever heard of Doctor Who or the Daleks, and a proposed film version of the third Dalek serial, The Chase, was scrapped. Sometimes the time travel movies which are most appreciated by audiences are the ones which never made that much money at the box office, and this was true of Somewhere in Time. How did this come about? The late Richard Matheson, with a very prolific writer of horror, fantasy and science fiction films, among other things he wrote episodes for The Twilight Zone and the Star Trek TV series. He also wrote the TV movie Jewel, and the book I Am Legend, which has been filmed three times, including a 1972 version directed by Boris Siegel, which was called The Omega Man. In 1975, Matheson wrote a book called Bid Time Return, about a young playwright called Richard Collier, who goes back to 1895 to woo a contemporary actress called Elise McKenna. Matheson got the idea for the book after he saw an old photo of a Victorian actress called Maud Adams and wondered what would happen if he went back in time to meet her. After researching Adams' life, Matheson spent some weeks staying at the Hotel del Coronado in San Diego, where he pretended to be the hero, Richard Collier, and dictated his thoughts into a cassette tape recorder. In Matheson's original book, Collier is dying from a temporal lobe brain tumour and it is implied that his trip back in time to 1895, achieved through self-hypnosis and subsequent events, may all be a hallucination produced by his diseased brain. In 1979 the book was filmed, but a number of changes were made. In the book, Collier dies of his brain tumour in the film he dies of a broken heart. In addition, the Hotel del Coronado was considered unsuitable for filming as it was surrounded by modern structures. So another location, the Grand Hotel in McKinney Island in Lake Michigan, was used instead. In the book, Collier travels from 1971 to 1895, but in the film he goes from 1980 to 1912. This change was made so that there could be a character, Arthur the Bellboy, who could be present in both time zones. The film was a financial and critical disaster when it was first released in the autumn of 1980. Critics didn't like the very emotional tone of the film and felt that muscular Superman actor Christopher Reeve had been miscast. Also, at the time of the film's release, there was an actress strike, so the cast couldn't publicise the film. Yet within a few years, with the advent of cable television and video rentals, 
it became a cult classic and is now highly regarded. And famously, Somewhere in Time has its own appreciation society, which has its own website. Somewhere in Time does indeed have its own appreciation society called INSIGHT, which stands for the International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts. They have a very comprehensive website and a fanzine, and they hold a convention every October at the main shooting location for the film, the Grand Hotel on McKinney Island. Many of the cast and crew have attended these conventions, including stars Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, and director Gino Schwartz. Now, there are a number of connections between Somewhere in Time and James Cameron's 1997 film Titanic. Could you say a bit more about those connections? On the Insight website, you will find two very comprehensive articles which explain the connections between Somewhere in Time and Titanic. I will briefly explain some of them. Both films are set in two time periods, the then present day and 1912. Both feature a love triangle with two young lovers and an older, more controlling man. Both end with the hero dying and the lovers being reunited in the afterlife. In the book Bidtime Return, Richard Matheson mentions that Elise McKenna's manager, William Fawcett Robinson, who is played by Christopher Plummer in the film, dies when the liner Lusitania is sunk during the First World War. The Lusitania was the sister ship to the Mauritania, which is mentioned in Titanic and looked very similar to the Titanic. There are many other connections. The watch in Somewhere in Time is stuck in its own time loop, as is the pendant in Titanic. And if you want to read more about this, then I suggest you visit the Insight website. Now, one chapter of your book has been devoted to the famous Terminator film cycle, a series of films which is very closely related to the notion of time travel. Uh, what do you think of these films? I can clearly recall the first time I saw the Terminator on a rental VHS video in 1985. I was expecting a cheap video nasty, but instead I was completely blown away by the film. What was so good about it was that the writer and director, James Cameron, portrayed future technology in a very convincing way. James Cameron has a background in both engineering and English, and so he was able to make the audience believe that things like killer robots really could exist. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's casting works brilliantly. His very muscular physique and stilted English with a hint of an Austrian accent, perfectly conveys a machine creature. I thought the first film was near perfect, and the second was even better. Subsequent films such as Terminator Salvation and Terminator Genesis have not been so good. The Terminator series of films might be regarded as a time travel franchise. Another such franchise from the same period might be the Back to the Future trilogy. How would you rate them? The Back to the Future series have a totally different feel to the Terminator films. They're much more light-hearted and comical than the Terminator films. For example, there is no swearing in Back to the Future films. No one really gets hurt. There is no gratuitous sex or violence. And there is always some kind of happy ending. 
The Back to the Future films also rejuvenated the reputation of the DeLorean sports car. If the films had not happened, then the DeLorean would have been regarded as one of the great failures of the automotive industry, as the original production run only lasted two years. Because of the films, the DeLorean is now regarded as a highly prized collectible car, and production resumed in Texas some years ago. Just three Back to the Future films were made, with the last being released almost 30 years ago. They were very successful. So will further films follow. I think a remake or sequel is a possibility, but with Michael J. Fox now being affected by Parkinson's disease and Christopher Lloyd being very old, I think the parts will now have to be recast. Another interesting feature of time travel movies is that they have their own subgenres. For example, the time loop movie. Could you say a bit more about those kind of categories of films? The time loop movie is one in which the main character experiences the same day over and over again. Many such movies have been made, but the best known would be Groundhog Day from 1993, in which Bill Murray, playing a TV weatherman, experiences the same day repeatedly. Eventually, he uses this new ability to learn new skills and woo his colleague Rita, played by Andy McDowell. It's an idea that has been copied many times since. And as you just mentioned, there's another subgenre of the time travel film, which is the time loop slasher movie. One of the most interesting hybrids would be the 2009 Australian film Triangle, which starred Melissa George. Would you like to say a bit more about how those films fuse time travel and horror together? Melissa George is an Australian actress who has made a number of films and TV series in her native land and the USA. In 2009, she was the star of a Warner Brothers picture made in Australia called Triangle, which was never a great commercial success, but became a cult classic. The film centres around the character of Jess, played by George, who is a single mother with an autistic son. At the beginning of the movie, Jess arrives at a marina by taxi and appears distraught. She's agreed to go on a trip on a yacht called the Triangle with a group of friends. The name Triangle, by the way, is a hint that the events of the movie are taking place in the Bermuda Triangle. The film is supposed to be taking place in Florida, although it was actually shot in Australia. In the film, the weather starts off calm and sunny, but the crew soon encounter a strange-looking dark storm cloud with lightning bolts inside it. The yacht overturns, one girl drowns, and the youngsters are forced to cling to the bottom of the upturned hull. At this point, a 1930s vintage ocean liner, the Aeolus, appears in the horizon and steams towards them. The youngsters manage to board the liner, which has an art deco interior which looks a bit like the hotel in the film The Shining. Initially, the ship appears deserted. There's no sign of the crew or the passengers, but after a while, youngsters spot a mysterious mass shooter who appears intent on killing everyone. Eventually, Jess discovers that she's stuck in a time loop and that she herself is the mass shooter at a different point in the loop. 
The only way she can escape from the liner is to kill everyone else, including earlier versions of herself. After some time and various complications, she succeeds and finds herself lying on a beach. She makes her way to her house, looks through a window and sees another version of herself physically abusing her son. She enters this house, kills the other Jess and puts her corpse in the boot of her car. She then drives to the marina with her son, but on the way there she has an accident and her son is killed. In a distraught state, she takes a taxi to the marina and it is implied that the events of the entire movie are now going to repeat themselves. The film poses a number of questions. Is Jess going mad? Is she dreaming all this? Or is she actually dead and experiencing a kind of purgatory in which she experiences these same things, these same horrific events, over and over again? As I said, the film is a cult following and many people have compared it to Life on Mars, Ashes to Ashes, and some of the more incomprehensible episodes of The Prisoner. One of the most recent time travel films to have an impact on popular culture is actually British, the time travel romance About Time, which was written and directed by Richard Curtis. How do you feel that stacks up against time travel cinema in general? I'm a great fan of Richard Curtis. He started off by writing comedy sketches for Not the Nine O'Clock News, which ran between 1979 and 1982 and was the first really funny TVD comedy sketch programme since Monty Python's Flying Circus, which had ended its original run in late 1974. By the 1990s, he'd written a number of highly successful romantic comedies and his two most famous films would probably be Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually. About Time is a typical Richard Curtis film as it combines gentle comedy with good characterisation and an interesting plot. The plot concerns a young man, Tim, played by Dominic Gleeson, who at the age of 21 discovers that he has a genetically determined ability to travel back in time to somewhere he has previously visited. All he has to do to go back in time is to go to a dark place, such as a cupboard, close his eyes, squeeze his hands together and think of the time and place he wants to go to and he will arrive there. After mastering the technique and making many mistakes, Tim uses his newfound ability to woo Mary, who is played by American actress Rachel McAdams. The couple marry and have children, but Tim is unable to prevent the death of his father from lung cancer. At the end of the film, Tim decides that his life will be happier and more fulfilled if he lives each day as it comes and he vows never to use his special ability again. It's a film which is both funny and heartwarming and one of my favourite time travel movies. Well, Colin, you've certainly told us a bit about the past and the present of time travel cinema, and I think it's fair to say you've given us a bit of a glimpse into its future as well. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Colin's book, Travels in Time, 
the story of time travel cinema is available to buy from all good online retailers and independent booksellers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon. would like to find out more about advertising on the extremist publishing podcast please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details